Welcome to an AONN Plus podcast event created to provide a platform to engage and inform membership on relevant topics which impact your professional practice. The focus is on the AONN Plus eight domains of knowledge. This podcast will highlight the Navigator Pledge that was developed in 2017. As a navigator, I pledge my head to share knowledge for informed decision making, my heart to empower advocacy and loyalty, my hands to deliver compassion and remove barriers, my hope to embrace and preserve quality of life. Navigators have within themselves the inner strength, the power, and the fortitude to do what is needed for patients. They should never doubt their abilities, knowledge, or willpower to make things happen. Thank you for joining us as we honor the Navigators, special people that make a difference in the lives of those around them. Hello, I am Monica Dean, Director of Patient Navigation Program Development with the Academy of Oncology Nurse and Patient Navigators. I'm joined here today with colleagues from the cancer support community, Susan Ashley and Kelly Hendershot. For our latest podcast discussion to discuss the emotional responses to cancer for patients and caregivers. It is such a pleasure to be here with you both today. Susan, would you like to introduce yourself? Well, thank you for having us, Monica. I am an oncology social worker and started my career in the mid-90s working exclusively with head and neck cancer patients. And since that time, I've had the great opportunity of building programs and supportive care programs. And now in my role at the cancer support community, I oversee the entire line of clinical programs and services, including our helpline and my lifeline, as well as our education and outreach program. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. And thank you again for joining us and providing your expertise. Kelly, please introduce yourself to our podcast listeners. Thanks again for having us as well. I'm Kelly Hendershot. Along with my colleague, Susan, I'm also a social worker. I got my start in social work because my husband died from cancer, and we just both were really amazed by the social workers in our lives at that time. So for a period of time, I was the program director at Gilda's Club Quad Cities in Davenport, Iowa. That's an affiliate of the cancer support community. And for the past year, I've been the senior director of program at cancer support community headquarters. And one of my main roles is to really just be a liaison and a point of contact for program directors, the licensed mental health professionals at all of our locations across the U.S., Canada, and around the world. Wonderful. Thank you again for both joining us. I think in this field of oncology, whether we work for an advocacy organization or we're a clinician, cancer itself, we've all been touched by cancer in some way, shape or form. So I think that's the beauty of the profession and our colleagues together. So to kick us off, a diagnosis of cancer opens the floodgates to a variety of emotional responses, both for the patient and of course the caregiver. In today's episode, we're going to explore the varied and predictable responses and how you as a navigator can help your patients and caregivers grow resiliency. So let's go ahead and dive right into our discussion. Susan, can you discuss with our listeners the emotional challenges of cancer and some of those predictable stress points? Sure. For all of your listeners, you know that cancer always happens in the psychosocial realms of life. Folks decide to endure some of the hardest treatment protocols because they want to get back to their life. And part of the illness 
is also the emotions that go with that. And we know that there are some predictable stress points, which will be not surprising to anyone who's listening today. At diagnosis, at treatment decision-making, we see elevated stress, distress, fear, anxiety, that waiting for the results. Oh my goodness. It, even if it's 24 hours of waiting, it's on the edge of, of your seat. And that encourages and invites elevated stress as well. And we know from the research that post-cancer treatment survivorship, that time of re-entry, is a time of great distress for survivors. It is usually the time where physically they come up for air and say, what just happened to me? And that's at the very moment that their family is wiping their brow and saying, let's get on with it. And so there can be friction emotionally during this post-treatment time. There are some universal challenges that oncology navigators should not be surprised by when patients report them. And we could bucket them into a few categories, living with uncertainty, what's going to happen around the corner, fear of unknown, loss of control, loss of or changes in hope. What do I have to hope for with this treatment? And unwanted aloneness. We saw this even more specifically during the early days of the COVID pandemic, where folks really felt isolated and alone. In our work at the cancer support community, patients and survivors, as well as caregivers who interact with our cancer experience registry, report almost very serious concerns with things like eating and nutrition. When we're not eating, when we're losing weight, it's emotionally a fraught time. Thinking clearly those cognitive impairments and changes where you're feeling not like yourself, as well as changes or disruptions in work and life and family. Those are all things that kind of come to the table in the midst of a diagnosis and treatment and well beyond post-treatment. Thank you. I think you brought up a really good point, Susan, around throwing in the COVID piece of it. So in your work and your wealth of experience as a social worker, were you able to see some big differences of pre-COVID and in emotional responses to these diagnoses or just throughout the cancer continuum to now? Unfortunately, I think the new norm we're going to be living in, in a COVID space. Yeah, we're really seeing now is that third pandemic, mental health that is changing. We're seeing across the country, both nationally, an increase in folks reporting symptoms that are consistent with depression and anxiety, but for sure we're seeing this within the cancer community. We actually saw an 80% increase in call volume on our helpline, and folks were calling about a wide variety of things, but particularly around isolation, some of their care being delayed or suspended, and then obviously the financial impact and burden of COVID where folks lost jobs or had to go to part-time. And that's already in the midst of a pretty financially tight time of cancer treatment. What we're seeing now is that after pandemic, even though we're still in the midst of it, where folks waited for their routine mammograms or colonoscopies, and now they're finally coming back into the healthcare system, and we're seeing more late-stage diagnoses, which, as you can imagine, is another opportunity for the emotional impact for patients and families, because now they're questioning and wondering, 
Should I have come in earlier? Would that have changed the course? And so that guilt is significant and we're seeing patients and families report that. The other thing that I can talk about, and I would love to hear from Kelly as well, is last year, caregivers weren't able to go to appointments. And so often they were on the sidelines and it just wasn't the same. So there was a high level of anxiety and distress for caregivers last year. Just to add on to that from the caregiver perspective, not only was it they weren't allowed to go get firsthand news from the doctors, from the medical team about their loved one, they also gave a lot of sacrifices to their own mental health during their loved one's treatment. Because if all the family needed to be on Zoom for school, for extracurricular activities, for different learning activities, oftentimes it was the caregivers who would say, I'm not going to go to my support group, you go to yours, or I can't make this educational opportunity because the family bandwidth, we just don't have the capacity for everybody to be on Zoom at once. Absolutely. Susan, I really like how, and I hadn't even thought about this, is the third pandemic with the mental health piece of it. I think that's the one thing that really has kind of risen to the top is the recognition that your mental health is so important. So as much as COVID and this almost two years that we've been going through, I'm glad that mental health is now really being brought to the forefront and that we shouldn't be discouraged to talk about it, or we shouldn't be afraid to say, I am just not doing well and I need to seek help. So that's one thing that at least I think has been a positive. So as we've kind of been talking in this vein, let's talk about distress because we know that patients will experience distress. Can we talk about how not managing distress can really impact on a patient's well-being? And then, of course, the caregiver aspect, too. Following what Susan commented on earlier, she mentioned the word guilt. And there's a lot of guilt that is felt by caregivers. We know that 71% of caregivers in our cancer experience registry report so that they have a great fear of that cancer recurrence. And that's followed by worrying about the future and what lies ahead. And when I see people come to a support group for a friends and family group, a caregiver group, that recurring theme of guilt is often the first thing that they'll express. It can be overcoming that barrier of guilt to even have the conversation, to voice to other people that you are having these stress points. A lot of people think that it's my wife, it's my father, it's my child. I've got this. I should be the one taking care of them, which is great. But it also puts up walls that they feel like they can't be talking to others about the situation without feeling guilty. And then they also oftentimes just aren't being able to take care of their own needs. So the caregivers really do spend a lot of that time worrying about the future, pain, discomfort of their loved ones, and really trying to shove under the rug feelings for themselves. And Kelly, how do you coach caregivers around guilt? Just like you, I've had a personal experience with cancer, both my parents and kind of carrying some of that. What would you recommend for navigators to help have that discussion with caregivers and not to feel guilty during that time? I think it's important just to ask whoever the caregiver is, let's say Jane, Jane, how are you doing? Because often the question a caregiver gets is how is John doing with their cancer? So just recognizing that the caregiver is having their own struggles, their own anxiety, their own distress. And some of the things that's also equally helpful is just emphasizing the need that there are support group options out there. A lot of times once a caregiver sees and hears other people talking about similar situations, it'll become much easier for them to express their own feelings. 
I was one of those people who didn't want to talk during a support group. And here I am, I'm a social worker because it helped me so much. And a lot of time, a big hurdle for caregivers because they feel like they should do it. It's their loved one is just being reluctant to ask for help or receiving help when it's offered. So it's a great gift. If you accept help from somebody else who wants to care for your loved one, do whatever they can to take things off your plate. And if you can offload some of those logistical tasks, like grocery shopping, walking the dog, some mild household chores, that really gives the caregiver time to pay attention and be present with their loved one. And it also gives them time to think about their own health needs, get an extra nap in, go for a walk, go to a support group to address their mental health needs. So it's really sort of reframing the need for help and how important it is to accept that help when it is offered, I think, for a caregiver. I really like that reframing it because I think we're all hesitant to ask for help, whether it is I just need someone to talk to or it is some of those logistical things. Hey, neighbor, can you please help go get the groceries? So I like those tactical and practical tools and tips that our navigators can really sit down with the caregiver because the focus is a lot of times, like you said, it's on the patient so that caregiver can kind of be in the shadow. So I really like those tips and I hope that our navigators listening will take some of those away and kind of open that door of conversation for our caregivers. So Susan, let's talk about the patient perspective. As I was listening to Kelly, I was thinking about guilt in general and what makes some of the emotional impact so striking for patients is the tyranny of positive thinking. The guilt that goes with if I can't stay up and positive my entire cancer experience And so cancer impacts every aspect of a patient's life. And that's physical, it's emotional, it's the practical consequences of having a cancer diagnosis. And many patients in the community experience really significant levels of distress. Estimates range between 25 to 50%. It's probably a little higher. A third of folks, very significant distress that need intervention right away. I'd like to ground folks in the definition of distress because we use the word all the time that sometimes we don't ground ourselves in the definition. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network really put that definition of distress on the map. It's the sixth vital sign. So after we look at blood pressure and pulse ox, we should also be looking at distress because it's just so significant. But the definition is it's an unpleasant emotional experience of psychological, social, and or spiritual nature that may interfere with the ability to cope effectively with cancer, its physical symptoms, and its treatment. And why is this important is that although distress is very common, studies have shown that a notable number of patients with cancer who have significant distress are never identified or assessed. And even when they flag someone down, patients don't often get the referral to the support that they need. And there's a variety of reasons for that. So why does this matter to you, to me, to um, oncology navigators is because unmanaged stress, depression, and anxiety is linked to poorer outcomes. And we care about that. There's not a navigator listening right now that doesn't think about quality of life, symptom burden. And so when we not only assess and evaluate for distress, but also do something about it, we know it impacts outcomes and quality of life outcomes is very important. 
I think those are all really incredible points, especially again, thinking about making that unit for the navigator to be identifying some of these things. I really appreciate your comment. We use the word distress so blanketly, but do we really know what that definition is? Thank you for kind of paring that down for our listeners. We've talked about both sides, our caregivers and our patients and the emotions and what that does during someone's walk through cancer. But let's talk about what the navigators really can do, whether they're an experienced navigator or even a new navigator walking in and doing this role for the first time. And really, how can they truly and effectively support their patients to help build that resilience as they walk that cancer journey? It starts with something quite simple, and some of it is just normalizing. You think about some of the navigation role, which a big portion is education. We certainly normalize for fatigue and some of the other symptoms that will be consistent with a line of therapy. I see the emotional impact as just part of that normalization of let me give you insight on what you might experience over the months ahead. In the same way that we say you may experience fatigue. You may experience nausea and vomiting. We're not prescribing anything. We're simply offering it as an invitation, a possibility, so that folks aren't frightened by those symptoms or those side effects related to treatment. And we should be doing the same thing around the emotional impact as saying, I don't want you to be surprised going into this, that you might have a wide range of emotions. In fact, you may feel like you are on a roller coaster, a roller coaster of one that is hard to describe. So let's talk a little bit about defining resilience and what resilience isn't. Resilience isn't positive thinking. Many patients and families think that's what it means to cope well. That if as long as I'm always positive, then I'm going to be okay. Dr. Jimmy Holland coined the term, the tyranny of positive thinking. And what that really looks like is the unwillingness to have the full emotional experience. It is not sane to get a diagnosis of cancer and say, no big deal, right? It's not sane, that's crazy. You may feel like I, I'm capable of getting through this, but behind that is, oh my gosh, am I gonna die? Is my family gonna be okay? Will I be able to pay for this? How will I manage work? So other things come up to the surface. Being able to say to someone, You can be an optimist and you can make positive action, but you don't have to stay happy all the time. That you may grieve, you may experience a wide range of emotions, and that's okay, is sometimes the best thing a navigator can tell a patient or a caregiver, which is, it is okay if you first need to cry. There will be laughter and other things that come alongside with that. So there are many ways to define resilience. And resilience sometimes needs a lot of fortitude because it is about trying new things in order to bounce forward or bounce back from adversity and to adapt and grow through a cancer experience. It involves recalibration and asking for support and help. It is a muscle that we all have. And so that means we can all strengthen it. So it isn't as if a group of people are born with great reservoirs of resilience and others aren't. All of us have it. It's how we use that muscle, how we seek support, how we strengthen it. And much like hope, we have to activate that muscle of resilience. And sometimes that means going to a support group. Kelly talked about 
She didn't want to go to a support group. She went to one. Now she's a social worker. Who would have known? That was developing that muscle of resiliency as a caregiver. And so navigators play an important role in even teaching that skill set. I used the example before I started talking about resilience. It is like preparing for chemotherapy. Let's prepare for resiliency, what things need to be in place so that we have fortitude throughout the experience of cancer and well beyond, because we know that post-treatment survivorship can be elevated in distress and anxiety. So sometimes it's during that time that we will need to put things in place like mindfulness and exercise and other sorts of things that we just know help you strengthen that muscle. I absolutely love your comments just around the insights to your own emotions. As navigators in the role, we're addressing barriers, we're providing clinical education, but I'm taking away that really, let's take a step back. And yes, there is the clinical piece of it, your diagnosis, what your treatment's going to look like. But maybe that first conversation is really about, this is what you may experience emotionally. And I love the takeaway. You don't have to be happy all the time. I know I am not happy all the time, but I have to be able to recognize and accept that. And then just really encouraging our patients and caregivers to ask for support or helping, again, that navigator really opening the door to that conversation. And I really love the statement around activating the muscle of resiliency. That is a great term and statement. I really like that, Susan. Thank you. Kelly, is there anything else you would like to add? Yeah, I just wanted to add that based on our cancer experience registry data, we also have learned that only 16% of caregivers feel as though they've been trained to be a caregiver. So a lot of times, especially with cancer, when you're forced into a caregiver role, you have no idea what you're doing. I remember the first time my husband had a fall, I was 27 in great health, almost threw up my back, had to call his dad to help him help me get my husband up told the healthcare team about that and learned that there's such a thing as a gate belt. I didn't know at that age. And it was just a game changer. So I think that there's a lot of practicalities to caregivers that navigators can help with and just point out. They're probably going to seem like they're obvious, but they're not going to be obvious to somebody who's new in a caregiving role. And a lot of times caregivers don't define themselves as caregivers if they are not doing active things like helping to feed, helping to bathe, things like that. So it's just making sure that we're addressing somebody as an emotional caregiver as well, because that is just as much, if not sometimes more work, trying to be that support person from an emotional standpoint for the person in our lives with the cancer diagnosis. Absolutely. In a similar vein, I was a caregiver for my father, trying to keep that emotional wall up because goodness, being upset in front of this stoic man, my father, and then him doing the same thing. It was that terrible battle of, okay, we're both going to be strong through this. But in reality, you know, I should have probably listened to this podcast during that time that it's okay not to be happy all the time. And it's okay to shed some tears that you're angry about what's going on during that journey. So thank you both. Thinking about closing, would love to see if either one of you have any last closing comments, and then even if there's any resources that you both want to share from the cancer support community. I'm going to talk specifically to the the navigators. You are professional caregivers as well. So what we are talking about also applies to each of you and how you care for yourself, being okay with the emotional aspects of being a navigator. When we are at bedside or chair side and we are hearing 
bad news being delivered, that hits our heart as well. And so part of resiliency, part of teaching and having a space for your patients and caregivers is also doing your own work to acknowledge what you need as professional caregivers. Your experience as a navigator is so important and it sets really the tone and the stage for the care you're delivering. So I always like to remind navigators that you are in a caregiving role too and to sustain this beautiful work that you've chosen. It's a real calling. It also means how you care for yourself, how you lean into the emotional aspects of this work. This is beautiful work, but it's also tough. And so I wanted to kind of speak directly to each of you as caregivers yourself. Kelly, I'm not sure if you're able to talk about how we support and resources that folks that are listening today could get access to for their patients and caregivers. So Susan and I both, again, work for the cancer support community, which we are a global organization. We have over 170 locations worldwide, and all of those locations offer educational support, healthy lifestyle activities. For instance, we talked a lot about nutrition and movement and exercise. Those are things that you can participate at one of our locations. There's a lot of opportunity for social connection. And as I mentioned, I was a member, I loved the support group aspect, but we know support groups aren't for everybody either. So those are a few of the things we do. All of our support groups are facilitated by a licensed mental health professional. And the fifth aspect that we offer on an ongoing basis is we are a resource and referral service. So you can visit one of our local locations that might be in your community. We have the cancer support helpline that you can call to be connected anywhere that we might not have a physical location. And since a lot of our affiliates are still virtual at this time, that means that there's a lot of great online opportunities to get some additional educational support as well. Wonderful. And I think that the beauty of cancer support community, like you said, across the United States, there's actually a cancer support community location right around the corner from where I live and such a valuable resource and incredible place. So I want to thank you both so very much for joining us today. I know I am taking away a lot of things that I hadn't considered before and just new learnings. And I hope also our listeners as well. And then just the practical tools and tricks for navigators to help with their patients and their caregivers. In closing, Susan, I really appreciate you bringing up that navigators are that professional caregiver too, because I think we do. It's kind of that forgotten voice. They're taking in all those patients and all those families and all those caregivers that they work with every day and taking that home with them and just probably thinking about it. So it is so very important for navigators to take care of themselves. I think I heard something earlier about just mindfulness. That is something I am trying to be more aware of and a tool to use in my day-to-day. So I thank you both so very much. And we will on the website include some links for resources for the cancer support community. So thank you, Susan. And thank you, Kelly, for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you for joining AONM Plus and today's engagement with key knowledge leaders to enhance your navigation practice or program. Please visit aonnonline.org for other navigation tools, education, and best practices to advance the role of patient navigation in cancer care across the care continuum.